So this morning we're, um, we're looking at Mark chapter 7, verses uh, 14 through 23. We've been thinking about this for the past few weeks. Um, it's on page uh, 843 if you are using the Pew Bible. I heard someone say that revival, and we sang that this morning. I really appreciated um, uh, the words revival. Because I really feel a hunger for that. You know, I drove, I drove in this morning a little later than normal because um, Laura's been gone. And so uh, I had to get Emery around, and so that took longer. Um, combing hair, like, I don't know how you ladies do it. It's awful. It is the worst thing ever. Uh, and it took me forever to do it. <laughs> but I'm driving past these houses, and I just, I'm seeing car after car after car, and I'm thinking, these people don't probably, by and large, need Jesus, because they would be getting around at this time. They're coming at the same time I am, and I, I just, I felt like this, this hunger, this like, we got to share Jesus with them. Like, we need revival. We need the church to be excited about God. We need um, the church to expand and go into the neighborhoods and, and to, to, to reach out to these people. And yet I heard someone say something, and this has been echoing in my mind this morning, that revival cannot begin without reformation. That if we're going to be a church that God is able to use, we have to be a church that is passionate about holiness, that's passionate about following God, that's passionate about the scriptures, that's passionate about obedience, that's passionate about God's presence. And God's presence needs to have a people who are willing to set aside the things of the world and to hunger, hunger for the things of God. And until we have that kind of reformation in our midst, revival can't happen. I think that ties in very strongly with uh, the words that we've been reading from Jesus here. Because Jesus is talking about just that. I mean, you think of John the Baptist comes on the scene and, and there's a revival that sparks, but it immediately begins by John saying, you need to give up your sin. Jesus shows up saying the very same things. Think Jesus didn't want fire to burn in Israel. People have passion for God. He wanted what we want. And he began by talking about sin as well. He says, and I'll, I'll give it to you this morning, maybe, Mark chapter um, four, 7, verses 14 through 23. These are the last few verses, beginning with verse 20. He said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are the things that defile a person. And this is important for us to know as church people who are so interested in outward accoutrements, right? We've got cross necklaces, we have cross wallpaper, I have cross ties, like ties with crosses on them. Why? Like just, why? We have all this outward stuff, but what's the heart look like? What's the heart look like, Jesus said? We talked at length um, last month about the work of Jesus in our lives, that Jesus has been crucified, he was buried, he arose, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that this effectively means something powerful in our lives. It means that you have been justified. It means that you have been sanctified. It means that you have been glorified. It means, as we read through Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit has, has come and filled you, that the Holy Spirit is leading you, that the Holy Spirit is the indwelling presence of God in your life, in this room, right now. That is what God wants. 
wants, and that is what God is doing in you. And that is incredible. It's incredible. I mean, if I think of my own life, and I take just a few moments of my, my thoughts and how quickly they were all over the place as we had just a few moments to, to sit and to pray and to contemplate uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, how quickly I began to think about all kinds of other things. It is nearly unbelievable the fact that the Bible says that I have been so transformed before God that God sees me and he calls me a saint, a holy one. And when he sees you, he sees a saint, he sees a holy one. And this is not of our own doing. It is a providential act of God. It wasn't my decision. It was God's decision to step in and to rescue me from the depths that I slink to over and over and over again. It's incredible. This message that we have been given, this message that we have received, that God would lavish upon us all of these spiritual blessings. And it it overlaps what Paul's ministry is all about. And my mind was taken to 2 Corinthians um, chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And and before this, uh, Paul is speaking and he says, Don't you know that you are the temple of God? Uh, Paul, Paul, wherever Paul went, Paul read, he's out. He left already? Oh, okay. Paul, get in here. There he is. Talking about you, man. <laughs> Paul read this morning about the, 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 the Holy Spirit falling and God descending when the temple uh, was built. I mean, think about the temple. The temple was, it was gold and it was ivory and it was stone and it was massive. It's one of the seven wonders of the world and yet something greater has happened both individually and corporately. We are the temple of God. You are a temple to God. And so he concludes, the, um, Paul concludes with some of these thoughts here from 2 Corinthians. He says then, this is God speaking, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And therefore, this is the command to us, therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, that's a staggering bit of good news, isn't it? That we would be the sons and daughters of God, but more than that, that God would walk with us, that God would dwell with us, that God's desire is to be in our midst, is to dwell within you, and and one day to walk next to you. The Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And this, this, this good news extends both to the temporal right now, this moment where we are the temple of the living God, but also to the future when God comes to restore and to rule all things. God wants you in his house. God wants you in his kingdom. And so we're encouraged then to, to, to take on the, the life of somebody who would be a temple. I mean, if you're a temple, if the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling in you, how should you then live your life? And this has got to lead us to that question, doesn't it? It has to lead us to that question. You notice the importance of holiness here. Therefore, go out from them. Separate yourself. Touch no unclean thing. Don't have anything to do with the things that are unclean. The scriptures say, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. So cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And the word heart here, and the word heart that Jesus uses earlier in, in, in Mark chapter 7, doesn't have to do with our emotions. It has to do with our will. It has to do with our mind. What do you want? How do you think? That's what Jesus is going after here. And so the Apostle Paul concludes um, in verse 
chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians verse 1. Since then, we have these promises. Just take a moment to, to think about those promises. God dwelling with you, God walking with you, you being his temple, you being his holy one, you being his son, you being his daughter. Think about these promises for just one moment. Since we have these promises, beloved, then let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is to me a really important verse, and it connects with what we're talking about from Mark chapter 7, because I think um, we're to blame, as good church-going folks, and especially those of us who are in ministry, we are to blame for not getting what Paul is saying here. Because we have talked so much about sin, like you need to give up sin and you need to stop sinning and don't do that, that's breaking God's divine law. We, we have created, and I have this weekly conversation with people, we've created this, this, this thought process about who God is as though he is the, like the, the Santa Claus, this divine Santa Claus making a list and checking it twice and he's just crossing names off. Well, you're too sinful, you're doing this. And, and, and we've talked so much about sin that we've never gotten to the base of why it matters so much. Because if anything, God is the divine eraser who is out there washing away all of our mistakes, erasing all of our misdeeds, taking care of all of the junk that we have pumped into our minds, into our lives, into our families. God is, is this act of grace constantly giving us his love. And so this isn't about divine law-keeping although that will happen eventually, this is about who we are. Who are we before God? We are transformed people. And transformed people have nothing to do with the way they used to be. They've been changed, radically altered, radically reshaped, radically made new. And this is about being then, not about law-keeping, not about rule-keepings. It's about a change of will. So the question this morning that Jesus is kind of laying out before you is, what do you want? What do you want? Because Jesus is not saying, well, man, I really know you wanted to deck that guy, uh, but you didn't. Good job. Pat yourself on the back. Now, I mean, if you've been running around decking people then, and that's your first step, then that's good. But the, the intention is deeper than this. The intention is that you would be the kind of person whose pride isn't so easily offended, whose anger isn't so quickly kindled, that you would be the person who, who wants to bless instead of curse, and who, when receiving evil, wants to give good so that, so that that person might come to know the grace that you have received. The, the goal is that the inward change would, would manifest itself in the outward change, but first it starts with the will. What do you want? Who are you? And don't forget that this has been the message, not, not, not starting with Jesus, but starting with God. And think of uh, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that I could be your God. Jesus, or God brings the, the ten plagues on Egypt and he, he brings the people out of Egypt so they could be with him. God wants to dwell with them. Jesus came so that he could be your God. Because otherwise, most of us, were not Jews, 
right? We were Gentiles. We were, we were apart from God. We had no knowledge of him. We were caught in our sin. We were caught in, in this trap of the devil and death and sinfulness. And God, in his great love and mercy, gave us Jesus because he wants to be your God. That's a credible thought too, isn't it? And so what is the transformation? What is the, the revelation? Then Jesus says, or the, the Lord says in Leviticus eleven forty five, Therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now the word there uh, it, that's being repeated actually four times, even in the name of God, is the to be verb, the existence verb, where God says, I am that I am. When Moses says, what's your name? God says, I am. I exist. Like, I, that's, that's all you can, that's really all you can know about me. I exist. It's the same word that's being used here. You are to be holy, just to be inside, outside, all around, holy, just like God. Transformation, renewal, change. These are not legislative things. These are gifts of grace that God gives to those who love him. And so that brings us back to the text that we're looking at this morning, uh, Mark chapter 7, where Jesus is talking about the things that defile a person. And if these are the things that defile a person, it's great that we have kind of a list so we can have a starting point anyway and begin to point out the things that we're, we're missing. Last week we talked about what's translated in, in, in our version here that we're using is deceit. And I expanded that notion because the Greek word there, delos, is, is much larger than just telling a lie, but it's, it's, it's engaging in any kind of falsehood that achieves a positive end for you. The word that's next to it is sensuality, and I want to talk about that this morning. Sensuality. Now, sensuality is kind of a weird word in English. It's a weirder word in Greek, and it, and it means not just sexual immorality or lewdness or when I'm driving to Lansing and I'm passing billboards of, of scantily clad ladies, you know, hawking um, gentle, gentlemen's clubs or booze or whatever. It's not just that. It's a much broader idea, um, and there's not really a good English word for it. Um, but I, the idea maybe is a little closer to self-abandonment. Like, I, I, I know what everyone around me, I know kind of the social mores, I know kind of things I should do and not do, but, but I want to, I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm going for broke, right? I'm just crossing those bounds. But when I um, think of it, and we've been, t- oh, there was like a weird bug right there. What is that? Be gone. All right, what was I talking about? Good. My mind. My mind goes to, uh, to the Wolfman. We're talking about monsters. Um, and I, I don't know if you saw the old movies, the old Wolfman movies, where he's like, you know, gets bit and goes crazy and he's howling at the moon. He's taking his clothes off and running around biting people. You know what I mean? It's just craziness. The same kind of idea. Like he's captured by this insatiable need to go and to, to just break all these things. And, and, and it causes disaster. And his life and everyone around him. It's the same kind of concept that's going on here. And, and while lycanthropy is, is like fictitious, except for maybe the Nebuchadnezzar thing, which is another weird story in the Bible, the idea of us being having like beasts is not new. Uh, Proverbs 26, uh, 11, which tells us that a dog, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. In the New Testament, this is repeated. Only here it s- says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a sinner returns to their sinfulness. 
We think of Romans chapter 1 where it talks about how God gave people up to their, their own desires. Like they just kept on pursuing their own sensuality, their own desires, pushing the boundaries of, of what is good and right and true. They just kept pushing, pushing, pushing. So God says, fine, go, be animalistic, just go. And so they trade their natural desires for unnatural desires. And to me, Jesus is speaking like to our culture, right? I mean, think about the, the movie industry. I mean, the, the, everything is predicated, everything in our culture is predicated on how do I push it a little bit further, right? We're talking about movies, uh, TV shows, music videos, if they make those anymore, I don't know. Um, do they make those anymore? Yeah, okay. I'm sure they do with them then too. Uh, think of, of commercials, and we're always pushing the bounds, and now thank God, like presidential elections. We're always saying, what, what is the line? How did, we, how did we scandalize everybody last week? Because we've got to go even further this week. Constantly pushing the bounds. More sex, more violence, more scandal. We need more, more, more. And we, like ravening beasts, we're like, we crave that. I mean, the, the reason that you have this so industry, you have this mentality, is that people buy into it. We're constantly after that next thing. Give me the next thing. I need more. The scriptures are wonderful because in its place, in the place of that desire for sensuality, we have something much greater. Instead of being driven by that insatiable need to push the boundaries over and over again, instead of sensuality, we are called to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what salvation is all about. Part of the gift of salvation is that you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a slave to sensuality. You're no longer a slave to constantly needing the next thing, constantly needing to fill your senses, constantly needing more. You have something, people who are driven by that. Our culture, our people, your friends, your neighbors, your enemies, the things that they don't have, you have. You have peace. You have peace. I don't have to constantly be looking for the next thing because I can rest. I can rest in the grace that has been given to me through Jesus Christ. I can rest in the presence of the Spirit. I don't need more new things. I can open up ancient scriptures and they speak truth. And they change me. I have peace. I have rest. And that is, I think, the opposite of this sensuality that we see and the sensuality that Jesus is talking about. He's warning us, not condemning us. He's pleading with us, not, not judging us. He's saying, let go of that stuff because that will lead you down a dark path. It will constantly fill you up with something that always leaves you wanting more. But I have living water. And they will spring up and well up and fill you up to eternal life. That's good news. And so this is really kind of a one-point sermon. I want you to realize the peace that has been given you. I want you to recognize the peace that has been offered to you and poured into you, the spirit that is dwelling within you even now. The spirit, the scriptures say, of peace. And that you would take hold and grasp that peace. And that as we're constantly bombarded with this message of, don't you want more? Don't you want more? Don't you want more? You can say, I have all I could want and more. There's nothing you have to offer me. And then we could lay aside the sinfulness, the sensuality, and we could pursue truth. 
that we could fix our eyes on Jesus. And instead of asking ourselves, which is the central question of sensuality, how do I please myself, we could begin asking the question, how do I please God? I, I want to, um, flipping your Bibles to First Peter. In First Peter, I think there's some practical application for this. Um, we've been talking rather theoretically, um, but in First in Peter it's dealing with the same sort of thing. You have Christians who are at a, in a culture where there's all kinds of, you know, I mean, coliseums and fights and, 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 and prostitution and, and uh, all kinds of things. Everything and, and more that we have today. And Peter is writing to them, talking to them about how to live their lives. And I love it because it's super scandalous to our modern ears. So this is um, page 1015 if you're using the Pew Bible. Um, but I'm going to give you the first verses, beginning with chapter 2, verse 13, says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Then if we jump down to verse 18, Servants, be subject to your master. We could translate that slaves as well. Slaves, be subject to your masters. 3.1, ladies. <laughs> Likewise, wives, be subject to your husband. And verse 7, husbands, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I, I, I chuckle because, like, I've sat through so many conversations with people looking at this and saying, look at how the Bible supports the status quo. Because if we, if we read it with the wrong mindset, we say, well, well, Peter is saying, yes, you should give up sensuality and you should pursue God. And what does that look like? It looks like upholding dictatorships and slavery and patriarchy. That's not at all what Peter is saying. It's not at all what Peter is saying. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. It says, live as people who are free. That's a strange thing to say to people who are being oppressed by the Roman government. It's a strange thing to say to slaves who are obviously not making a lot of their own choices. It's a strange thing to say to ladies who are in a society where the husband is the emperor. I mean, not king. Emperor of his household. And this is a strange thing to say, to all of a sudden say, live as though you're free. Unless we understand that freedom in Christ isn't just freedom from sin, it's freedom from everything. I no longer owe a master anything. I no longer owe a husband anything. I no longer owe a government anything. They don't owe Rome anything. No, they are free in Christ. Completely, utterly free. Now they belong to Jesus, to Jesus alone. The only thing they owe is a continuing debt of love to the brotherhood of believers, and to Jesus himself. But what do I do with that freedom? That's the question that asks. Like, how do I live my life now that I've been set free from all of this other stuff, unshackled from these chains, totally and utterly free in Jesus? What do I do now? He says, don't use your freedom for evil. He says, Live in submission or be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And here he talks about emperors and governors. And that's, a, that's interesting. It's interesting to me that he doesn't like, like jump into and dive into like, well, who's got better policies, the Donald or Hill Dog? He doesn't jump into, you know, uh, the, the president's awful, this or that. He doesn't jump into judging who is what and doing what and who is good and who is bad. and who. He doesn't say any of that stuff. He says, simply submit yourself, whether it's a good one or it's a bad one, at that time, a bad one. Submit yourself. Why? Because they deserve it? Because they're right? Because they're in charge of you? No. Verse 17. Because you honor everyone. 
And if you honor everyone, then you honor the police officer who pulls you over. You honor the governor who makes really terrible laws. You honor the president who you don't really like very much or you love very much, whatever. You honor them. And so it isn't about, it, it, it immediately becomes, becomes not what do I want and, and who satisfies my needs and who scratches the itches that I want and who's got the policies that I like. Immediately becomes how do I show people that we are an agency of good in the world. Now what he says here, he says in verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorant and foolish people. The people who say you're a rabble rouser, the people who say you're no good, the people who say that's a bad group of people. No, you put them to silence because you honor everyone. No longer asking the question, how do I please myself? No longer asking the questions of sensuality. The same thing here with servants in the text that we read, servants, we could also translate that be slaves, is, is, is Peter saying slavery is awesome and everyone should do it? No, he's not. He's saying that there are Christians and they're slaves. What are they going to do with the freedom that they now have in Christ? Are they going to run away? Are they going to pilfer? Are they going to be bad? What, what are they going to do? Here he says something scandalous. He says, you stay and you serve, and you serve so good that people cannot believe it. Why? Because of what Paul read earlier. That's the conclusion of this very point. Because Jesus died an unjust death. Because no longer is the, slave, the slave's concern with how do I get my freedom because I'm already free in Christ. Now the slave's concern is how do I convert my master? How do I show people Jesus? Everything becomes transformed in the grace and glory of God. Now our question is first, foremost, and always, how do I share Jesus? How do I share Jesus? So you've got a boss that's a jerk, total jerk. But what are you going to do about it? You you got to work, right? You can't quit. You can't deck him. You can't. What are you going to do? There's nothing you can do to change that person. There's nothing you can do. And so what sensuality would say to me is say, well, I'm going to let out and vent my anger to my coworkers. I'm going to spit in his coffee and smile when he drinks it. Right? I, I'm, going to, I'm going to get at him in any way that I can. But sensuality has gone. And now we have been changed with how do I help this guy meet Jesus? Because if it wasn't for me, I'd probably be just like him. If it wasn't for Jesus, I'd probably be just like him. So what do, I, what do I do? I learn how he likes his coffee, and I make it to him, and I make him look at me like he doesn't know what's going on when I bring it to him and say um, something nice, right? I mean, it, everything is changing now because of Jesus Christ. Wives as well. In Roman society, um, I was surprised none of you ladies got up and left when I read it. Uh, in Roman society, non-Christian society, women were not on equal footing with men, right? So if you were married to a non-Christian husband, he was the emperor over your life. And what do you do in a situation when you find yourself there? What do you do as a married couple when you find yourself in a, in, in a world that says the husband should domineer the wife? What should you do in that situation? Well, we know what Paul says about the Christian marriage. Paul says that the husband should lay down his life for his wife, that he should love her as Christ loves the church, and that what should the wife do? She should submit to the husband and love him. And so we have this vision of mutual submission where no longer am I asking the question of how can I get what I want out of Laura and she no longer asks the question, how can I get what I want out of Jordan? I ask, how can I serve her and love her like Christ loved me? And she says, how can I submit myself to him just like I submit myself to Jesus? There's no longer a hierarchical situation in our marriage. But when the world sees us, what do they see? 
They want to see their own vision of marriage. They want to see hierarchy there. And so what does it say? His suggestion is this. He says that we ought to be one, that people should be one. Wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without the they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, so that people could see my marriage and say, man, I want a marriage like that. How does that marriage exist? And I have an opportunity to share Jesus with them. That's what it's all about. How do I share Jesus? Um, goes on in verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. This is interesting to me because I have never read this and cared. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, I guess I could braid my beard or something, but that would be really weird. Um, but I have a daughter now who loves dress-up games. Digital, these, they're, like digi- they're on the computer, it's like digital paper dolls, and she's laying dresses over top of these, uh, these girls and putting earrings on them, you know, all this beautiful stuff. And, and I, I'm actually starting to grow a little concerned about this, and I don't really know what to do. I don't know if I should be bothered by it or not. But it's, but it's interesting to me because as a youth minister, I would go to these conferences, and I would literally have to look away from these girls because I was so, I, I was so like, afraid I was going to get arrested or something for looking in their direction because things are hanging out all over the place. And I know that— um, my feminist friends are going to balk at this and say, well, look at this, this is more male oppression of women. But I think that's, that's wrong-headed because what's being offered to you ladies is that you have to look good for me. And you have to look good for all the guys around you. And how do you look good for them? Well, you keep it tight and you keep it small. Like that, you go to the, I, go to the store, this is what it is. And you paint your face. Like you gotta paint your face because you aren't good looking. I tell Laura, I hate makeup. I tell her not to wear makeup. I married her because she was beautiful to me. And I, she doesn't need all that other stuff. Um, but what we are pushed over and over again is that you are not good enough as you are. And the scriptures say that that isn't the way you should see yourself because that is certainly not how God sees you. And so what should we adorn ourselves with? How should we be viewed? And this, I think, can apply to men. We're just as vain as women are. Like, we pretend like we're not. But I I blow-dried my hair this morning, so I have no room to talk, right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Nicole applauds, because she taught me how to do it. I was like, I don't know what to do with this thing. (laughs) We're just as bad. If we adorn ourselves, if we're constantly putting on airs by what we wear, whether we're wearing uh, suits or watches or gold gems or, 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 or makeup, all this stuff, this is missing the point. It misses what God is doing in your life. Look at verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I just, I hear, I hear friends of mine say, look at the oppression there. Look at, but it's not. What's being addressed here to ladies is the same thing being addressed to men. I think it was Paul that said to the entire church, let your gentleness be known to all. Right? And it was Jesus who said that the meek inherit the earth, right? It was Paul that said to everyone, listen, your desire should be to live a quiet and peaceable life. This is not just addressed to ladies, this is addressed to all of us. How do we present ourselves? How do we find true beauty? How do we set aside sensuality? Because sensuality is all about the external, isn't it? It's all about how things look. 
It's all about pleasing the flesh. And Jesus says, let that junk go and let yourself be filled with peace. Let your spirit be quiet. Don't seek conflict. Don't seek uh, noise. Don't seek uh, beauty. Don't seek all of these external things, but rather focus upon the heart. Because I don't care what they say on Facebook, Alan. Right? This is what we're supposed to look like. We're supposed to look like Jesus. And this changes everything. Everything about who we are. Everything about what we do. Peter isn't offering us a new word. He's offering us an old word. It's a word that he received from Jesus. It's a word that says, um, you are now different. You are now changed. Because of my death, because of my resurrection, because of my ascension, you are now a saint you are now a holy one. You have now been changed. You remember the prophecy about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 53? It says in Isaiah 53 about Jesus, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He wasn't majestic. He wasn't, there was, there was nothing about him that suddenly draw our eyes and attention. No beauty that we should desire him. In fact, what happened with Jesus? He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Isn't that the story of Jesus? I mean, Jesus himself, the Son of God, is walking and he's constantly interacting with people and they get what they want from him. They get the miracle, but then what? They leave. So much so that when Jesus has died and rose, risen again, how many people are left? Seventy some odd people, right? I mean, smaller than is in this church this morning, the Son of God. And so why would we make ourselves different? Why would we think differently about our own lives? Why would we fill our lives with sensuality and desire? Why would we seek to adorn ourselves outwardly? Why would I put myself out like that? When that wasn't the way Jesus won people. The outward stuff is vapid. Like the outward stuff is stuff that passes away. But the inward beauty of a person is what will draw people to Jesus. And that's what we're all about, isn't it? We're about drawing people to Jesus. We're about sharing Jesus. And so you might look frumpy inwardly or outwardly to the rest of the world. But to God, you're gorgeous. And to people who are seeking that which is real that which is true, that which is honest, and that which is good. Those who want to drink from the deep well, they will be drawn to that which is true. They will be drawn to you. And so my word to you this morning is to live quiet, peaceful, godly lives, to love the, out, to love the inside more than the outside, to have the beauty of a gentle spirit, a quiet spirit, to search after the hidden person of the heart. As we come to a conclusion this morning, um, I want to offer an invitation to anyone uh, who needs to meet Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe again. Maybe you need prayer. We'll have an elder down front. I'll be down front. If you need somebody to pray with you, we invite you to come forward uh, and, pray and, and be prayed over as well. If you have a decision to make, make it this morning. Please stand as we sing.